Hey, everybody, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast Podcast Network. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, making sense of Trump's polling numbers with Ian Sams of Navigator Research and Brian Bennett of The Hub Project. Spoiler alert, the numbers are not what they appear. We also break down crucial messaging for Democrats as they look to craft a fourth stimulus bill that will put families and workers first. And we talk about how to reach and sway swing voters in advance of November. Then Trisha Zunker is running for Congress in Wisconsin's 7th District in an upcoming special election. We talk about how her race, which is happening in a purple district in perhaps the country's most crucial battleground state, could tip the balance of power and even impact the 2020 presidential contest. That is all ahead, so stay with us. If you were like me, let's say you've been perplexed by Trump's bump in the polls around his handling of the coronavirus pandemic. As recently as March 20th, an ABC Ipsos poll had him at 55 percent approval rating. To help us parse and maybe understand this and to give us some more recent data, we have invited on Brian Bennett. He is director of polling and analytics with The Hub Project. Hello, Brian. Hello. And also with us is Ian Sams. He is a senior advisor to Navigator Research, an organization that commissions polling and helps shape messaging for progressives. Ian also writes the really fine Navigating Coronavirus newsletter, and he is formerly the national press secretary for Kamala Harris. He has also worked for Hillary Clinton, Tim Kaine, the DNC, and others. Ian, welcome to you. Thanks for having me. So, Ian, just very briefly, uh, I mentioned that you write the Navigating Coronavirus newsletter. Just tell us uh, in a few words just what that is. Yeah, so basically um, it's a partnership between Navigator Research that you mentioned before, which is a fantastic um, polling apparatus that Brian has really been a leader in managing for the last two years um, of tracking various public opinion trends on um, important public policy issues. Uh, uh, and in this environment of coronavirus, we've adjusted it and I've come aboard to help um, uh, with identifying how the public really is processing all of this in real time. And um, what we try to do every day, it's a partnership between the Navigator Research folks as well as Hub Project and um, Groundwork Collaborative, which is a progressive economic uh, think tank organization. Um, and what we try to do is sort of digest the daily public opinion of how the public is reacting to everything from Trump's handling of this to how the virus and um, quarantining is impacting their personal life and behavior uh, and and distill that into concentrated, cogent message guidance for progressives and frankly, anyone in trying to A, hold President Trump accountable for the way he's managing this crisis and B, try to chart a path forward of how to respond to this crisis, both with policy solutions uh, and um, how to talk about the uh, massive problems that are happening with the administration's response. Yeah, it's as I said in the intro, it's just a tremendous resource. Uh, I can't recommend it uh, more highly. Um, And Brian, listeners may remember you from uh, when Navigator first launched. We had you on the show to talk about uh, the work that you did there. So uh, we're happy to have you back. Uh, I mentioned the 55 percent approval rating. Uh, that uh, Trump has had in his handling of coronavirus. And I'm wondering, where do things stand right now for Trump in terms of numbers, uh, particularly around approval? So when we launched the Navigator Coronavirus Daily Tracker, um, we found that Trump had a 52% approval rating um, in terms of handling the coronavirus response. 
um, and 42% disapproved at that time. That was about uh, two and a half weeks ago on March 24th. Um, we have found that there has been um, already uh, some erosion in the percentage of Americans who are approving of his um, response. Um, in, our, in our latest release uh, that came out today, April 9th, um, we found 50% uh, approve, 47% disapprove. Um, but I think it's worth putting that into a couple into context in a couple of different ways. Please. Um, first, first of all, um, we asked a follow-up question um, in our most recent results, asking um, why do you approve of his handling of the pandemic? Is it more because um, you approve of the way that he has shown um, strong and decisive leadership, um, or is it because um, you want to stand with the president? Uh, in a moment of national crisis. And um, one-fourth of that 50%, about 13% of Americans, say um, because they want to show um, alignment with the president in a national crisis. Um, so I think that there's some underlying softness uh, to that approval rating. Um, the second thing I would point out is that we also asked um, how governors across the country um, are handling the pandemic response. And there we find uh, that approval rating of governors um, is actually quite high at 72% approve and only 22% disapprove. And there's some difference based on um, whether you're a Democratic governor, Democratic governors get 75% approve, Republican governors get 69% approve, but it really shows that the um, kind of the rallying behind leadership um, effect is not really happening with Trump to the same degree that it is happening with state and local governments. Well, you know, what's what's very interesting, you mentioned the comparison to, to governors and the way that they have handled it. Uh, I'm also curious as to how, because you talk about this uh, need that I think people feel generally when uh, there is a national crisis. You do want to get behind uh, the person who is in the presidency. We certainly saw that after 9-11 with uh, George W. Bush. Um, you know, we've, we've seen it a number of times uh, with uh, presidents during crises. And I'm wondering how he compares to other U.S. presidents and also how he compares to other world leaders uh, in terms of, of polling numbers. For sure. Um, so at least in terms of I'll use the example of um, George W. Bush after 9-11, because it's it's one of the more immediate ones mm -hmm. and really kind of created that effect, which was. Immediately following the September 11th attacks, um, George W. Bush's approval rating at, at points spiked to um, in the high 80s and even hit 90% in yeah. the polls. Um, and it took it took several months, um, even a couple of years, for that to decline um, more towards a reversion to the mean of of having closer to 50 to 55% approval. Um, whereas here, um, you know, Trump started at 52% approval on the on the pandemic, but we also his, we, we measured his record high in navigators tracking um, on his overall performance at just 47%. Um, and so you just really are not seeing uh, the same kind of effect happen here. And his overall approval rating has kind of started to, to slide back to where it was before the crisis really broke out in earnest as well. So in other words, if he weren't Trump, uh, the bump probably would have been bigger, right? Right. And, and, and also to address your question about uh, world leaders, Please. unfortunately, I don't have specific numbers in front of me, but um, almost um, every other world leader has experienced um, a significant bump in approval ratings. Um, one that comes to mind is that ratings of Boris Johnson in the UK um, were measured in the in the mid 60s in terms of approval. So uh, there's definitely a, a unique effect that is happening with the way um, that Trump is handling it. And I think part of it is driven by the fact that um, even though 50% or so say, um, that he's handling the response, 
um, uh, or they're, they're approving of his response. 61% um, at the same time are also saying um, that Trump left the country unprepared and wasn't doing enough um, to have the pandemic response prepared to be as effective as it could be. So I think there's just a lot of underlying concern with the way that the Trump administration has been handling um, both the preparedness and the current response. Yeah, just in terms of uh, the numbers, some other numbers that, that you show that are declining, uh, people definitely, there's a rise in, in people seeing Trump as dishonest. There's a shift uh, on people, more people seeing him as incompetent. And one I would love uh, to get your take on, Ian, is that people uh, are seeing, people who get their news on social media, he's losing ground among them. Uh, that is the vast majority of sentient beings in, in the United States. Um, any any thoughts on, on why that's happening? Yeah, I just thought that was an interesting um, change. I mean, it, it, you, I think that there's a lot of branding that Trump has done over the last few years. And I think that a lot of the members of the media who have covered his campaign in 2016 have, have done uh, to create a mythology that he is so sophisticated and good online, that he has an incredible right. social media and Facebook information or disinformation apparatus <laughs> yeah. um, that is so formidable that nobody can hold a candle. And one thing that jumped out to me about that number is, you know, there are limits, you know, and I think a crisis like this is really cutting through the noise and hitting everybody personally in a way that makes it hard for that level of disinformation to be successful. And so um, even even across this crisis, you know, people who largely consume news and information on social media are souring on President Trump's handling of the crisis. And it's easy to see why. I mean, every day there's a new example of him picking fights with the governor or blaming other people for his own lack of preparedness and downplaying of the severity of the crisis. And so as that coverage in, in the media continues at a fever pitch and ramps up every day, it makes it hard to ignore and it makes it harder to bifurcate where you get your information and, and, and kind of go to your various corners of reality. Uh, and it kind of unifies the reality for the first time in a long time. Um, that there is a, there are deaths happening. There is a virus that's taking over our country right. and a massive crisis has ensued. And so it's harder to sort of hide from that um, uh, online. And so it's it's been interesting to see that people who are consuming their information there are also souring on Trump at the same, uh, you know, at a, at a faster clip than than people who who get their news elsewhere. I'm going to ask you to go on, on kind of a limb here and speculate if you see any larger ramifications as far as that goes. Because as we know, misinformation and disinformation played a huge role in 2016. And we know that there is active disinformation. There are active disinformation campaigns happening uh, from all, all directions right now. Do you feel like people are maybe starting to question what they see on social media, uh, particularly as it comes from the Trump administration? Yeah, I mean, I think there's been and there's been some studies uh, kind of retrospectively looking at 2016 um, and the way that voters perceived information they saw on Facebook then versus how they view it now. And there, there's more skepticism in the public um, than there was a few years ago. I think that the way that 2016 was covered and, and, the, and the amount of conversation about the Russian intervention efforts and the Mueller report and everything really caused a lot of people to think a little bit more um, um, carefully about yeah. what they were consuming online. But, you know, one thing about this that I think everybody in, in looking ahead, not looking behind, um, I think we should expect that there's going to be some pretty intense um, disinformation 
activity happening in the coming months around uh, Trump and who's to blame for this crisis in the country. I would imagine that foreign actors or domestic actors who are interested in protecting Trump and keeping him in the White House um, will start to elevate some of his arguments. They'll for start sure. to elevate his attempts to deflect blame onto China as opposed to his own administration's inability to prepare and um, amass the resources necessary to take this on. I think that there's going to be um, that's going to raise the importance of continually hammering the facts about this and reminding people, especially if you're a candidate, you know, local candidate or something yeah. um, uh, in your state who, who are running for a local office. It's going to be important to remember how this all happened and to be talking about how this all happened and who's responsible for it. Um, because if if we don't, there will be plenty of other people who uh, bad actors who decide to fill that space and tell their own story of what happened here and who's to blame for it. And I think it's just a place where we have to really keep an eye out for what's to come. Yeah, completely agreed. And, you know, I sort of wonder, you you touched on this a little bit about how what is happening right now has real world ramifications. People are getting sick. People are dying. Um, and a, one of your recent newsletters showed that Trump is doing very poorly among Americans who have lost their jobs. I'm wondering if there's kind of a spillover effect here, and I'm especially wondering if that includes people who may have voted for Trump in the past. Is there any way to to know? Um, I think so, and maybe uh, Brian may be able to speak a little bit more um, to some of the way that maybe, say, Trump voters or or Republicans even, uh, or or folks who are you know have a higher proclivity to support Trump may right. be reacting um, uh, on the economic front, but. I think that one thing that's absolutely clear here is there needs to be an understanding of how we got to the economic mess that we're in right now. We didn't, it's not just the virus's fault that businesses had to close and lay off millions of workers. Uh, that happened because we had to put in place very strict and severe social distancing measures because at the front end, we didn't do enough to contain the virus. There was not widespread testing. There was not um, uh, the kind of c containment measures for people who were testing positive um, or uh, or experiencing symptoms. And what happened then was, you know, weeks or months later into the into the virus spreading around the country, um, Trump then came in to institute more strict guidelines to the CDC of what people should do, and that created a shock factor for millions of of businesses and workers across the country who had to take dramatic steps to um, scale back their their hours and work, um, which has now led to 20 million, upwards of 20 million Americans who are without a job. Um, and it's and I think it's just important to remember that that is how we got to this point. Um, it's not just that it was out of nowhere, the virus hit, and therefore the economy had to shut down. Um, there, this could have been prevented, and we could have saved millions of jobs by doing more early to contain the spread of the virus. Well, okay, so you just summed up in a way that uh, I was going to follow up and ask you about, which is um, this is a very hard thing ultimately to parse down. I, I think, you know, Trump, unfortunately, on messaging from my standpoint, seems to have the advantage. Um, and, you know, Democrats, we we deal in nuance a lot uh, on, on this side of the aisle. And it's much harder, I think, to boil a message down of saying, look, there were a lot of missteps and missed opportunities. And in fact, bad acting, bad faith on behalf of the Trump administration that made this so much worse than it could be. I, I guess I'll just sort of ask you as somebody who specializes in messaging uh, to... Is 
is, is it possible to boil these down into more succinct talking points? Is that too cynical of a way of looking at it? No, it's definitely possible. And everybody should sign up for the morning email where we hopefully try to do this every day. Yes, they should. In fact, while we're there, uh, can you just tell people how to do that? Yeah, uh, there's a there's an easy way to do it. You can go to navigatorresearch.org slash coronavirus. So okay. navigatorresearch.org slash coronavirus. Got it. And I'll have that in the show notes for people. Awesome. Um, yeah, and I, look, I think that uh, it is a challenge. And I think that these are complicated and complex things that are very difficult to distill down into bumper sticker language for people. The, the difference with this, though, and I think we're... We you know, need to kind of take our head out of where Trump has been over the last few years and think about this new context is there's not a person in this country, basically, who's not been impacted by right. this virus. And so there's a very personal connection to this crisis um, for most people. And um, and most people already believe that Trump failed to fail to prepare, that he downplayed the severity of it, that he didn't do enough and take it seriously enough early on in this crisis. Um, similarly, People already think that Trump's policy response economically to this crisis overwhelmingly favors the wealthy and big corporations instead of working middle class people. And so by talking about the fact that the reason that we now have millions and millions and millions of layoffs and job losses more than we needed, more than was necessary if we had just handled this right, the reason that that falls at the feet of Trump is because of his failure to prepare us for this crisis. And you know, there are millions of Americans out there right now who are struggling to get their unemployment benefits. We're just in the early stages of this. And, you know, as more and more um, screw ups materialize, unfortunately, with this administration's handling of the kind of funds that need to go to small businesses, the kinds of funds that need to go to states to fund unemployment benefits, those sort of things continue to be a problem for the administration. And as more people struggle to get access to that kind of capital, whether it's business people, their employees, or unemployed folks with unemployment insurance, um, I think it's going to be even more visceral in a way that people are going to say, why did they not fix this? Why wasn't this better handled? And those are the sorts of points that you drive home in a piece that you wrote a few weeks back for Crooked Media um, about Trump's policy response. And so you're, you're sort of uh, touching on this already, but I'll just ask you directly. It would appear that there's going to be a fourth stimulus bill coming up, possibly in May. Um, and how do you feel that Democrats should message around this in order to get a bill that is more oriented towards people, workers instead of corporations? I think the first package that went through, the first rescue package um, that went through that cost $2 trillion, it happened so fast and was in the middle of really the worst of, uh, so far, the worst of this crisis uh, and the spread of the virus that there was very little conversation about what it included. <laughs> and unfortunately, it included a half trillion dollar bailout for big corporations that's largely gonna be up to Trump to disseminate, Trump and his administration with very little oversight. Um, Which is a very, very know, frightening prospect. Very frightening prospect when you consider that that's you know, $500 billion that's being doled out to big companies without yeah. much of any check. Um, uh, and And, and you know, Democrats fought really hard to get whatever level of oversight there was into the bill um, and push things like increased investment in hospitals and frontline medical workers who need more resources right now, um, expansion of paid leave in the first package. There are things that they push hard, but you know, when you only control one of the real three power centers of passing a bill like this, 
it's hard to get everything you want. What I think Democrats need to do going forward, and really anyone, <laughs> I would encourage you know smart, thoughtful Republicans to think this way too, as we um, as we look into to the rest of this year. Uh, people need help right now. Uh, businesses will need help, and especially small businesses. And I think it's important for Democrats and everyone to support small businesses and 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 understand that what Trump and his administration are trying to do right now is not necessarily give direct aid to small businesses. They're trying to get money that can go to big banks right. so that the big banks can decide whether or not they can give money to small businesses. We need real direct funding to small businesses so they can keep people on payroll. The end goal here is to keep people employed and to keep working people having income. And so pushing for that, pushing for direct payments, more direct payments, you know, a couple $1,200 checks isn't going to cut it. We need more money being given directly to people who are struggling right now. Um, um, we need to increase the, the amount of unemployment benefits that we have uh, at our disposal. We need to inject more funding capital into that, and we need to make sure that they're getting out to people quickly uh, as they need it, which is a problem that's not happening right now. Um, and so I think that the key here is to, to not just talk about those things that you're pushing for and that you want, but also to contrast it with the priorities of Donald Trump. I mean, right now we have Trump out there talking about needing to rush support to the oil and gas industry because they're struggling right now. Nobody nobody wants to do that. Mm, right. Even Republicans oppose rushing aid to the oil and gas industry in a moment like this. And so part of it is just making clear that you're fighting for working people or people who have been laid off, people who are in the most pain right now, while Trump and his allies are pushing for multi-hundred billion dollar giveaways to big business, um, just like he did in the in the tax bill. Right, I was going to say, yeah, there's definitely a, uh, a reverberation there and uh, sort of predictable how he would handle this. So yeah, really just kind of lean into the contrasts. So, you know, if I could shift over to you for a second, Brian, um, something else sure. that has been uh, talked about as uh, I think a lot of people, progressives want in this fourth stimulus bill that's coming up is uh, voting by mail because it's possible that coronavirus may disrupt the November election and I know that uh, Democrats are trying to push for that. I'm wondering if you have commissioned any polling around that, if you are seeing any polling around that and, and what the numbers might look like there. Sure. I mean, I um, we have not taken that on in Navigator's research to date. Um, but um, before this crisis came about, uh, voting by mail is already an overwhelmingly popular issue, period. Um, there are many states um, such as um, Oregon um, and others, Utah, um, that already have vote by mail. Well, the, this this one, the one that you're uh, speaking to, Washington, we've had uh, vote by mail Perfect. for quite some time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. Um, and so, um, you know, it's it's just an, it's just an overwhelmingly um, popular position um, that I think um, as especially as more people become disenfranchised and with communities who are more at risk of, um, you know, deep sickness or death, um, older voters, I think that um, more than likely uh, Republicans will probably they should become more um, favorable towards supporting vote by mail. They um, should. That is what is so perplexing about it is that the vast majority of their of their really staunch supporters are the ones who are really at risk. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th I mean, ultimately, I think this comes down to a putting my personal hat on a little bit. I think sure. this is a, there's a very simple explanation for it, which is that 
Republicans think that if more people vote, they won't win elections, period. I mean, Trump said it almost. I mean, he said the quiet part out loud very recently. He said, you know, if, if, if we have vote by mail, uh, Republicans won't win is essentially what he said. Just boiling it down. Yeah. Right. And I mean, I think part of, you know, kind of to go back to what Ian was talking about in terms of what should be part of the COVID-4 response, I think um, part of that is because their agenda is so misaligned. So, for example, in um, the Navigator results that we released today, um, we asked a few questions about broad concepts that should be um, included in um, a a potential economic relief package. Um, And the way that we kind of structured the question was not just whether you support them, but do you support and have urgency um, behind them in terms of being able to help middle and working class Americans. Um, The things that emerged significantly were um, direct cash payments to Americans. Um, 76% of Americans, including um, two thirds of Trump voters are very supportive um, and think that it's um, expanding unemployment insurance benefits. 72% of Americans think um, that it's urgent. Expanding small business loan access. Um, things that are not urgent, but would might would otherwise be popular in, in a different time are exactly what Ian was talking about. Um, so like infrastructure investment, for example, might be a thing that's that's popular and that would be helpful for the economy in the long term, but people, middle and working class need to help now. Um, and so batting about a $2 trillion infrastructure bill is not necessarily what the public is looking for. And then when it comes to bailouts of, of, of large corporations and the oil and gas industry, only like less than 20% of Americans think that those would be um, effective and help uh, the middle and working class. So when you kind of put the whole thing together, um, you have a very deeply unpopular agenda that the American public thinks uh, the that advantages the wealthy over the middle and working class at a time when um, there is active uh, opposition to enfranchising voters. Um, so I think that's the explanation. Well, so let's kind of wrap all this up as it pertains to the presidential election. As we know, Bernie Sanders has officially suspended his campaign, meaning that Joe Biden is the presumptive nominee at this point. And, you know, ask you, um, how do Democrats handle messaging around coronavirus as we get closer to November? I mean, you, of course, want to call out Trump for his mishandling of everything, uh, but you also don't want to politicize an epidemic. So, you know, if you're Joe Biden, how do you ride that line? Yeah, look, I think it's a it's a fair question. I think a lot of people are concerned in this moment of um, uh, criticizing a president as there's as there's a crisis unfolding. The reality is, though, the vast majority of Americans believe it's fair game to criticize his handling of this as he's mishandling it. Um, so that, that's the first thing is people shouldn't worry about um, uh, leveling criticisms at those who are ultimately office holders who are accountable to the people for their behavior and their handling of crises like this. But secondly, as we look to to November, I think we just need to think about how um, this crisis has really fundamentally changed the landscape that this election is occurring within. Um, we've just had, as, as we've talked about before, a $2 trillion spending package of major policy actions. We're going to have potentially another trillion dollars in the next couple of months of new um, action to, to address either the economic crisis or the healthcare crisis. It's going to make um, some of the old arguments about policy seem sort of irrelevant and small. Right. And I think it's going to really elevate in people's minds two big issues. One is jobs in the economy and, and, and whether we can rebound and come out of the 
the funk that we're in right now, uh, primarily with millions and millions of people unemployed, who's going to who's going to better understand their pain and their um, anxieties and have real ideas to help them get better right. uh, and get back to work and to healthcare. I yep. think that this this crisis has really laid bare um, a lot of people's real anxieties about access to healthcare. And um, on that front, it's pretty much no contest between Donald Trump and Joe Biden as to who's got a better idea for expanding access to health insurance. I think that also the the third piece of this that I'll that I'll say about the election is. Um, all of Donald Trump's flaws are really coming to light. Um, when 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 forced to manage a crisis at this scale, um, he's completely failing. And I think people were already um, um, tired of the Trump show a little bit. We've seen that in the elections that we've had since 2016 um, at other levels. Um, and I think that because of this crisis, people are looking for a return to stability, someone who has experienced, someone who has um, values, experts, and expertise. Um, and it's going to really just make those things so much more front of mind. And voters will probably be going into the voting booth, making a referendum on Donald Trump's presidency, which for the last year before the election will be really dominated by his management of the crisis. Yeah. And, you know, in addition to that, I think uh, a lot of people believe that Trump's mishandling of the pandemic will figure more prominently even than his impeachment when the the history books are written. Uh, Brian, I will ask you, the Senate appears to be in play for the Democrats. Are are you observing any trends along those lines? So it's not something that we're monitoring in Navigator, but I think that just generally speaking, um, you know, the the overall environment um, is um, it's it still seems like from looking at other available public polling um, that the the environment is is still somewhat similar to the way that it was in uh, 2018. Um, there is a, a reasonably sized um, ballot advantage for um, on the generic ballot for the House. Um, I think that um, in the Senate states that are um, probably considered to be the most competitive, um, there are um, candidates that are running um, very good campaigns. Um, they're very close. Um, I think that there's there is obviously the potential um, when you look at. Um, I mean, first of all, who knows what's going to happen between now and November? We didn't realize that there was going to be a global pandemic. <laughs> right. Ago. Yeah. Um, but but I I do think that you know there there are a lot of other candidates in other states that um, very well could emerge. You know, Steve Bullock decided to run for the Senate. In Montana, that was not really a, a seat that was really on anyone's radar before he um, decided to run. Um, I'm from Texas. Um, I, I think that MJ Hagar could be a great statewide candidate um, to run against John Cornyn. So, and 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 uh, the situation with Kelly Loeffler, uh, it's kind of to link it back to um, the pandemic and her attempted profiteering or her uh, her actual profiteering um, off of um, having classified information related to the, the depths of the pandemic may make a seat in Georgia in play um, as well. So I think that there are definitely are um, opportunities um, and we'll just have to wait and see how this all plays out. So, Ian, the last question is for you, and that is, and you've touched on this already, uh, but, you know, we have a lot of uh, elected officials and candidates here in Washington who listen to this show and are going to be running for office uh, this year, kind of up and down the ticket. And I'll just ask you to close with any general advice on messaging for November. Yeah, I mean, I think that this crisis has really changed the landscape in a pretty fundamental way, but it hasn't 
necessarily changed the democratic priorities uh, very much. I mentioned this before about jobs and and healthcare being so much more front of mind now that this crisis has hit. This is something that this is a contrast that, frankly, Democrats and progressives up and down the ticket have been making for the last four years about who 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 do voters trust to really look out for them on these key issues. Um, and I would I would encourage everybody to double down. I think that. Um, uh, this crisis has really laid bare some of the major flaws within our country uh, uh, systemically on healthcare and the economy, and we have better ideas and a stronger vision of how to help more people, regular working people, middle class people get ahead uh, and get covered by health insurance. Um, I also think in Washington State, um, you know, Governor Inslee has done a great job with this crisis. Absolutely, uh, it is it is horrible, and it's unlo- and it keeps unfolding every single day. But he's on the ballot this year, and um, and he's gonna and he's gonna need people's support. And I think that um, I think that as this crisis continues to unfold, the management of it and the leaders who are managing it are just gonna have even more of a spotlight put on them. And it's just important for anybody who's running for any office, in my view, um, to to really lean into their own records and lean into their own um, authentic selves uh, and how they handle these things. And so I think in, in, in Washington state, there's going to be a big story to tell about how uh, the state and how local officials there really came together and worked together to address this crisis, which is just such a stark contrast yeah. um, with what people are seeing in Washington, D.C., uh, and Donald Trump's administration, and that's going to continue to be front of mind, and people should should lean into that story and that distinction as we go towards November. We have been nothing but proud of the work of uh, local leaders like, of course, Governor Inslee, King County Executive Dow Constantine. So many others have really uh, just been exemplary, and I, I, I think in many ways have uh, have kind of shown a light to the rest of the country, communities in the rest of the country. So uh, we're just enormously grateful to all of them. I'm also extraordinarily grateful to both of you guys for taking the time. Uh, this has been such an illuminating conversation, and uh, I, for one, feel a little bit better about the trends and... Uh, I, I really appreciate the work that you're both doing. Uh, also, highly recommend Ian's newsletter, and we'll have info in the show notes about how to subscribe to that. Uh, but Ian Sams and Brian Bennett, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks, stay safe. Trisha Zunker is running for Congress in a special election that should be garnering national attention, and we will absolutely get to why. She is a Democrat in Wisconsin's 7th Congressional District, and she is looking to replace Republican Sean Duffy, who recently resigned due to health reasons. Trisha Zunker, welcome. Well, thank you for having me, Stefan. I'm so glad to be here today. Well, we're glad to have you, and you know, I want to discuss your race in detail in just a moment, but... As everybody watching the news this week knows, Wisconsin has just been at the red-hot center of American politics. And so I want to get your take on what has happened there, specifically about Tuesday's primary election. So just a backgrounder for people, uh, despite people's concerns about coronavirus exposure, Wisconsin's GOP-led legislature decided that the election was going to be held on April 7th. But then Governor Tony Evers issued an emergency order that the state would postpone it. This was almost immediately challenged by state Republicans, and then it wound up being overruled by the state Supreme Court. So the, the election actually was held on Tuesday. And then concurrently, the Supreme Court ruled that the deadline for mail-in ballots in Wisconsin could not be extended. 
it's just so much all at once. And I will just ask you, what are your top line thoughts on all of this? Well, yesterday was just deeply heartbreaking. I mean, nobody should risk their life to exercise their fundamental right to vote. And that is exactly what happened yesterday. There was a lot of chaos, a lot of confusion, and we should always strive to be as clear as possible with the electorate. So, yeah, there were a number of different things that happened. Um, We have this safer at home order that Governor Evers issued a couple weeks ago. It didn't address the election. And in hindsight, it probably should have, but it didn't. Uh, But I think he was just kind of waiting to hear from the medical experts. And each and every day that passed, there was more information and really just became clear that people should not be going to the polls uh, because of the risk of spreading coronavirus. Uh, And the Wisconsin GOP, there was a special session that was convened on Saturday. They gaveled in and out, the legislature did. It's so frustrating because this should be a nonpartisan issue. This is, uh, we're talking about the health and safety of Wisconsinites. There was a way around this. Postponing the election for the health and safety made the most sense. Now, as far as absentee ballots, that was also a problem um, because there was some miscommunication on those absentee ballots. So a couple of different things exist with that as far as barriers. Number one, not everybody has Internet access to make that request. This is something that I see, especially in my district, where I'm campaigning through 26 counties, the northern third of the state of Wisconsin, extremely rural. Broadband access is a major issue here. So people don't all have access to make that request. Uh, Not everybody has a computer, a laptop, whatever, also to make the request on. And there's also a witness requirement for um, that absentee ballot. When we're practicing safe social distancing and we have people that live alone that aren't able to get that witness requirement, that's also a barrier. Well, last week it was announced briefly that people didn't need to have that, that it was waived. So a number of people sent in their absentee ballots without that written witness uh, signature only to learn this week that their ballot wasn't going to count, that that waiver was going to be revoked and that the witness signature requirement is still um, valid and required. So there's just really what's happening here is voter suppression. It's cheating. It's wrong. It's unacceptable. I will just ask you, because you mentioned that this should be a, a bipartisan issue, and observing from the outside, from you know the ways that, that I, I have seen this whole thing evolve, it seemed like the governor and the legislature were initially on the same page about postponing the election. So what do you think happened there? Do you think it really was a move by the GOP to suppress votes? I do. I think so. I think that they know that the more people that vote, the less likelihood they have at keeping the seats that they want or winning the seats that they want. And uh, I think that's cheating. Um, but that that's really what it comes down to here. And how does this impact your special election? Because that's supposed to happen on May 12th. Is it still scheduled for that? It is still scheduled for May 12th. Uh, the peak for coronavirus here is projected anywhere from the next three to seven weeks. So it is so hard to say, but even if even if the peak is before May 12th, we're still going to be on a side that's dangerous and people should not be heading to the polls. As far as impacting the May 12th election, I have been extremely vocal on the need to move immediately to mail-in voting for the May 12th election because, as I said earlier, nobody should risk their life 
to exercise their fundamental right to vote. Um, so we are working to um, get this message out and getting some pretty good media coverage from it, but hopefully, good. and I know Governor Evers is aware of this, but this is the logical choice. We certainly shouldn't postpone this election. We have been without representation here in Wisconsin 7 for months as it is. So this is the safest choice. It eliminates the barriers to absentee voting. It ensures health and safety of all Wisconsinites. And um, we can just continue on with this May 12th election, reduce the confusion, reduce the chaos. Uh, so I hope that's what happens. But I do expect the same fight that we saw here with the April 7th election. Uh, the, the argument, though, that they lose is timing because now we have a lot of time to prepare. Right. So what do you anticipate? Do you anticipate that a, a mail-in situation is, is likely or what does your gut say? I think that it is likely. I think that there is a good likelihood. Uh, I really do, because I think the strongest argument that the Wisconsin GOP is going to make, and it's not a strong argument at all, is going to be cost. Well, I don't think that the cost of ensuring uh, our citizens have the right to exercise their, you know, their right to vote um, compared to, I don't know, postage is really that significant of a cost. And especially when we compare it to the cost of lives that are at risk by going to the polls. So I don't think they would have a strong argument at all. Well, all of this, of course, is going to be such a factor in November. And, you know, people are uh, concerned about that now. Uh, I know that Democrats are pushing for that uh, potentially in the fourth coronavirus stimulus bill that may be getting hammered out in Congress. Um, they're looking about they're looking to put language uh, guaranteeing vote by mail in the November election. If you were in Congress, is that something that you would push for? Absolutely. I believe that we need to ensure the health and safety of all Americans and also make sure that we preserve the fundamental right to vote. Yeah, completely agreed. So let's dive in and talk about your race in your district specifically. And here is why your race has national implications. Voters in Wisconsin 7th could potentially be very decisive in the general election. There are a lot of so-called Obama-Trump voters there. What issues, and as we know, Wisconsin is a pivotal state uh, in the election this year. What are you finding the issues that are most important to these kinds of voters? Well, just to back up, absolutely, Wisconsin is critical. I mean, given Wisconsin's centrality in the uh, 2020 presidential election, the pathway to a new president starts with Wisconsin's seven special election on May 12th, because when we flip this district back to blue, Wisconsin is blue again. And by that, you mean that tips the balance of representation uh, in favor of the Democrats. There will be more Democratic representatives in Wisconsin than Republican. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And as far as the issues that matter, these are issues that are, aren't, you know, staunchly one side or, or the other. Uh, affordable, accessible health care, making sure that people with pre-existing conditions are covered without penalty, and making sure that when we talk about affordable, accessible health care, that includes mental health care, uh, taking on big pharma and drastically lowering the cost of prescription drugs. And another thing that keeps coming up is the environment. Uh, we have a lot of um, beautiful lands here. We have some areas of tourism. We have um, water areas that need to stay protected. And we have people that are really concerned about the environment as, a, as am I and making sure that we have clean air, clean water, and that our beautiful lands stay protected from corporate greed for generations to come and that we address this climate emergency with the urgency that it requires. As I've gotten throughout this district, and I've spent so much time meeting with people, it's been so amazing, um, and we've had to change this campaign drastically, as you can imagine, with COVID-19, but when I was able to get out in the district, something else that kept coming up was this common theme 
that people are just tired of the attacks. They're mm. tired of the gridlock. Um, they're tired of, of, you know, going back and forth. And we are just more alike than we are different here in Wisconsin, especially in Wisconsin 7. And uh, people just want someone that's going to get to work and work hard for them. And that's what I'm all about. I have a demonstrated record of working hard my entire life. It means something to me to be able to hang my hat on the day, if you will, and say, I, I got this done. I set out to do this and I accomplished that. And um, that's what I do in other roles and other capacities. And I'm looking forward to doing that as uh, the first congresswoman for Wisconsin 7. You know, Wisconsin 7 has never been represented by a woman before. Right. And I'm not asking anybody to vote for me because I'm a woman. I'm asking them to vote for me because I am a qualified woman who's going to work hard for this district and get the job done. But women's issues are human issues. And it is high time that our women and our girls see themselves reflected in congressional leadership. And our boys need to see that, too. I couldn't agree with you more. I- I want to back up and just drill down on a couple things that you touched on a little bit, and particularly in light of coronavirus. Uh, you mentioned health care uh, as being important to the voters in the 7th. I know that uh, Tom Tiffany is actually opposed. He's your uh, opponent. He's opposed to the mm-hmm. ACA. And I, I'm wondering, do you see attitudes shifting on the issue of health care in the face of coronavirus there? Well, I sure hope so. I mean, people shouldn't have to pay for this testing. People shouldn't have to pay for whatever treatment they need. Um, I I certainly hope that's the case, but I've seen some alarming approval rates for Trump's uh, response to this, which is so mind-boggling to me, given that he was well aware of this coming down the pike for months. And there are so many avoidable deaths and avoidable um, illnesses that uh, I, I, this approval rating, it just, it still, it, it shocks me. So I hope to see that modification, that change in attitude. But I think it's until somebody is personally affected, whether, you know, their family member or themselves, that that's when that attitude shift really happens. Uh, I will also ask you about uh, another uh, terrible aspect of the pandemic, and that is the economic impact. Uh, I'm curious how the Mm -hmm. seventh is being impacted, how you're seeing it being impacted by coronavirus uh, economically, and then what else you would like to see Congress doing in response? Well, yes, this is not just an unprecedented public health crisis, but it is an economic crisis, and it's also a mental health crisis. One of the things that I've been doing is reaching out to check on voters, see how they're doing, making sure that reminding them to check in on their people, their loved ones, but also on themselves. This is such a difficult and uncertain time. It's it's normal to feel anxious or sad or other. Um, So there is that mental health aspect as well. But as far as economic crisis, yeah, I've been checking with people. I've had people say to me just this week, I'm just trying to stay alive. Or I'm just trying to see how I can keep my workers being paid. I mean, this is having devastating effects here in Wisconsin 7 and not just in Wisconsin 7, throughout the country. I mean, we look at our small businesses. We look at our restaurants. I am practicing strictly safe social distancing here in my household. It's me and my son, my nine-year-old son, but also want to support small businesses by um, ordering takeout from restaurants so that they still have some income coming in. Yeah. So we've been doing that, but it, it's it's just devastating, and it's not limited to Wisconsin 7 by any means. How do you gauge Congress's response thus far, and specifically, I mean, the, the Democratic House, and what else would you like to see them doing? Well, I think we really need to make sure that we have something that is sustainable for people that's not a Band-Aid. Um, there's this $1,200 that some people have received based on a 
it seems to me an arbitrary number of, you know, 75,000. When there are people that maybe they do make more than that, um, but they also are going to be in need of that. And also $1,200 doesn't go very far. Right. We, we need to make sure that there's something sustainable, um, that we have our, our small businesses still supported, that our workers have the protections that they need. Uh, we don't have enough protections for people on the front lines, our medical professionals, but also people that are deemed essential businesses. I have a cousin who works in a grocery store here, um, and she was telling me how just early this week, one of her co-workers has been diagnosed with coronavirus. Oh, it's so scary. Yeah. Me how, mm. yeah, it's extremely scary. And then how um, they don't really have the protective measures in place. They, they seem to be doing the best they can, but I don't think it's good enough. So we need to make sure that, and we need to make sure that people are fully educated. There are too many people that are not understanding the ramifications here, that aren't practicing the safe social distancing, that are saying, oh, well, I feel fine, so... I'm not worried, not realizing they could be a carrier. They are people, they are putting people at risk. So we need to put more efforts in educating people as well to stay home, staying home saves lives. Uh, but yeah, that's really what we need to do is make sure that we have sustainable solutions that aren't band-aids and that we um, have our families protected and our small businesses will be able to survive. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned earlier that, you know, you're, you're running in an unprecedented time. You're running for office during a, a pandemic. And I'm just wondering, how is that impacting your ability uh, to run your campaign and how are you adapting? Well, as soon as the CDC came down with the recommendations, we immediately made changes. We canceled all public events in the interest of health and safety of Wisconsinites. We moved everything virtual. My staff no longer met physically in person with me. We've been using Zoom. Um, I use Zoom already in the school that I, one of the schools where I teach, so it's not foreign to me. Um, and we've changed events to the Facebook Live town halls, to Zoom meetings with different counties, different geographic areas. We've had to change fundraisers to Zoom. Um, I am running a grassroots campaign here. I refuse to accept corporate PAC money. So, and I'm not independently wealthy. I'm a solo parent. <laughs> and so I do have to rely on, on fundraisers as part of um, you know, getting my message out. So we've been able to adapt and have fundraisers that way. And uh, this global pandemic is horrible. It's terrible. But if there is a silver lining here, I can say that all of this use of technology has been really great for the environment. This is a huge district. It, I would be in the car six hours, you know, if I'm just going yeah. over to one part of the district and back. And to think about what I'm the the decreased degradation to the environment by just being home, um, there is that positive aspect. It's unfortunate it had to come this way, right. but um, so that's that's something we've done. I've also had to make a lot more phone calls. Uh, I mentioned earlier that we have a broadband issue here in Wisconsin 7, but we also have difficulty with just maintaining cell reception. This district is the northern third of the state of Wisconsin, and so I've spent so much time in the car, which would be ideal to be making phone calls simultaneously, but I can't because they're dropping all the time, and I even have two different cell phones, two different carriers, mm. <laughs> and it's still a problem. So um, big, making a lot more phone calls, reaching out to voters that way, listening to their concerns. Um, but that's really we've had to we've had to adapt. We have to deal with the hand that we're dealt, and we are committed to uh, prevailing on May 12th, and then again in November, because we really have no choice. 
uh, all that time that I have spent out in the district, one thing that I have seen time and again is that people are desperate for real representation for the people. We have not had that since Congressman Dave Obey, who represented this district for 42 years, and he has endorsed me in this race. Oh, and, wonderful. Um, That's great. I, I've been in, yeah, I've been, in, I've been in rooms that have been packed, and people say we've never seen a turnout like this for a congressional candidate. And I've had women with tears in their eyes, so happy, so excited about uh, this candidacy, and it motivates me each and every day that I could be out in the district doing that is as tiring as it could be. It's just the fact that we need a representative for the people, and I'm the only one in this race who's going to be a representative for the people. So I, I really have no choice but to just keep charging forward, dealing with the, the hand that we're dealt. Uh, it was already a challenging district to begin with, just given the the size of it. The fact that it is a bit gerrymandered, I don't have the same name recognition as my opponent, who is a state senator. Uh, I'm a school board president for one of the largest school districts. I serve my tribe, Ho-Chunk Nation, on the Supreme Court, and I'm well-known in my community, but that's one county out of 26. So there was that barrier. Now, if you had told me, oh, you'll also be campaigning your last two months in a global pandemic virtually while homeschooling your son, <laughs> I still would have <laughs> said <lot>. yes. Yeah. <laughs> I still would have said yes. I might have thought a little bit longer about it. But because I believe in public service, I believe I, I have an obligation and the duty to give back my relatives. Um, my Ho-Chunk relatives sold baskets on the side of the roads to make ends meet. They didn't go through what they did for me to just care about myself. Um, and so I see an opportunity here for real representation, and that's what I'm trying to do. And you would make history. As you say, you'd be the first female and the first uh, Native American uh, representative uh, from your state, uh, which would be absolutely extraordinary. I want to ask mm-hmm. you about one last thing before I let you go. Um, we did talk about how Wisconsin is a pivotal state in the 2020 election, but there's another angle. Uh, a recent piece in Daily Coast spelled out how the congressional balance between Democrats and Republicans in Was- in, in, in Wisconsin um, and having that in, in flipped in favor of the Democrats could literally decide the presidential election. Can you spell out how? Well, basically what it comes down to is if no one wins the 270 electoral seats in November, then whoever wins this special election could decide the presidency. Uh, Basically, under the 12th Amendment, the House of Representatives would then choose the president, but each state gets one vote. So right now, Republicans essentially control 26 states, including Wisconsin. But if I win this seat, then Wisconsin is tied, and that would block Republicans from electing Trump on a party line vote. Okay. Well, I like the sound of that. So uh, a pivotal race in a pivotal state. Uh, As you mentioned, you are doing grassroots fundraising. So uh, here's the big question. Where can people go to donate and learn more about your campaign? Well, I have a website. It is www.trishaforwisconsin.com. My name is spelled T-R-I-C-I-A, four written out, F-O-R, Wisconsin written out, W-I-S-C-O-N-S-I-N.com. Uh, I do have ActBlue. There's a donate link right there to contribute. I certainly appreciate each and every donation, as you mentioned, and I've mentioned this is a grassroots campaign. I can't do it alone. And uh, I also have a Facebook page. If you go to the search bar and type in Trisha Zunker for Wisconsin, pulls up my campaign page, stays pretty active, even through all the virtual campaigning. We have a lot of updates. I also have Twitter. Uh, my handle is Trisha, T-R-I-C-I-A, 4-F-O-R-W-I. Um, So those are some ways to connect with this campaign, and I certainly appreciate your time and um, 
any anyone's contribution. Um, you know, we have got to make things right here in this country, and it starts by electing the right people to those seats one election at the time, and the next election is Wisconsin 7 on May 12th. Well, there you go. Well, uh, Trisha Zunker, uh, you're just wonderful. We wish you the best of luck in that, and want to thank you for uh, joining us on the show today. Absolutely. Thank you. Trisha Zunker is running for Congress in Wisconsin's 7th Congressional District. And that's it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org, where you can find links to everything that we talked about. And our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast Podcast Network. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye.